If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard. The perfecter of the patio. And the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. Hello, I'm Rob Attar, and this is the fourth History Extra podcast for April 2012. Coming up this week, we have... He needs things to move on very quickly. He needs a decisive fight with Harold. He can't sort of go on fighting and fighting and fighting. All Harold has to do is survive. That was Mark Morris talking about William the Conqueror. Unless, you know, you're disinterested in life itself, (laughs) there's no reason why you would find history boring. And that was Anna Whitelock discussing public history. This podcast comes to you from the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find us in all good news agents and on subscription. There are more details of that on our website, historyextra.com. And we're also available digitally these days. You can purchase our Kindle edition from the Amazon website, and our new iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. There's more information on the iPad edition at historyextra.com forward slash iPad. Plus, as usual, we can be found on facebook.com forward slash historyextra or twitter.com forward slash history extra. In his new book, medieval historian Mark Morris takes on one of the decisive events in Britain's past, the Norman Conquest. He tackles some of the major debating points, such as the legitimacy of William's claim and the mode of Harold's death, and he also considers the long-term impact of 1066. I met up with Mark recently to discover what he had to say. Should we start off with William, Duke of Normandy? Yeah. How valid do you think his claim was to the English throne? Yeah, I think, I think the thing about the claim... I mean, the thing about the claim is that it divides people... It, very, it still divides people almost a thousand years on, doesn't it? That, mm. that you've got people who say, absolutely no basis, the Norman Conquest was an entirely opportunistic thing. It was all made up, either um, after the Confessor's death in 1066 or 
you know, it was made up to sort of justify um, uh, an opportunistic conquest. I, I'm very much a believer in the fact that a promise was made in 1051 by Edward, um, by Edward the yeah. Confessor. I mean, I think uh, that it's the neatest way of, 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 of reconciling all the, the various bits of evidence. Um, and also it makes the best sense of the story in that if you look, take for example Edward the Confessor as a point to start with, this is a man who from his early teens grew up in Normandy and spent the best part of a quarter of a century of his life in Normandy. He doesn't come back to England until he's middle-aged as king. So he's effectively a Norman prince or Norman nobleman. He's been educated at the court of the Norman dukes, he's been brought up there, he's been trained as, as a warrior in that, in that society. Um, so it takes a kind of almost sort of um, a sort of willful disregard of that fact to say well he didn't really owe the Normans anything or of course he did you know he, he owed his, his sort of um, existence to the Normans I mean they took him took him uh, they, they sheltered him from um, from uh, the Viking conquest of, of 1014 1015 so so I think he does owe them a debt of gratitude Edward the confessor um, the other things that have been uh, sort of raised against the Norman, uh, the idea that, that, that the confessor had promised the throne to William in 1051, uh, is a more technical argument um, that said the Anglo-Saxon D Chronicle. Um, it was suggested in the 1940s and 1950s by a historian called Douglas, David Douglas, that that was an interpolation that it had been added in the 12th century. And, and that's been sort of blown out of the water recently by um, Stephen Baxter in particular, has said, you know, there's no reason to suppose that that chronicle has been tampered with. And it's also, it's, a, it's sort of almost self-evident because it's a very elusive line. I mean, if you'd want, if you first of all, it begs the question, why bother doctoring a chronicle like that? It's not an obvious insertion. It just says, um, and then shortly after this, William came across with some of his men and was received by the king, and then they had a talk and then he went home again. It doesn't say what they talked about, but the very fact that that happened um, in the context of a year where uh, we think the promise of the throne was made is very suggestive. Um, and then lastly, I think, again, this is a more general argument about why I think the, the well, it's not really whether the claim was valid or whether, the, 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 um, the, whether a promise of the throne was made. Um, I think that to suggest that it's all cooked up by the Normans in 1066, to suggest that Lamfranc, one of the most famous scholars and churchmen of Western Europe, was in on this and that they appealed to the Pope knowing that it was all uh, based on a falsehood, is to ask us to believe rather too much. Um, and also because it's fantastically daring. It's a huge risk. I mean, William's warfare prior to this point, with the exception of um, the battle that he fights in 1047 for his survival as a young duke, William's warfare has been extremely cautious throughout his career. Um, to risk everything, your life, the lives of your men, your reputation, your duchy's future, um, on such a gamble, to build and, and assemble a fleet from scratch, to risk the hazard of crossing, to risk a major battle with a foe that's a much bigger and better organised kingdom, the Kingdom of England and the, du the tiny duchy of Normandy. It's, it's a huge gamble. We know that people only to undertook that kind of gamble if they thought God was on their side. You know, they're literally putting themselves into God's hands. So I think, I think that as well is a very strong argument for saying that William, at least, thought God was on his side and thought he was right. Um, and all these things lead me to believe, I think, that the, that the, that the Norman claim that, that William had been promised the throne in 1051 is true. William, uh, Edward may have promised it to other people, but I think that's, that's what they base their claim on, and I think that story checks out. And what about Harold's claim? Did he have an equally valid claim to the throne, do you believe? Um, again, I don't sort of know, I don't know whether we can kind of judge validity. Um, I certainly think that the Harold story um, is very dubious in places. I mean, if you look at, he certainly, he claimed the throne in, in January 1066 after the confessor died. Mm. Um, and the story that was given out was that the confessor in his last moments um, said, you know, well, you should take the throne. But if you look at the various chronicles, the, the, again, the various versions of the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, 
Only one of them, the pro-Godwin E version, says, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase because I don't speak Old English, but um, said that it was granted to him. Um, but there are two other versions of the Chronicle, the C and D version, that use a much weaker verb. They say they, they entrusted it to him. And similarly, if you look at the life of King Edward, uh, and another almost exactly contemporary source written within a, a year of 1066, um, that says, um, it almost introduces it casually, that the bequeathing of the kingdom. It's, it comes in the context of, uh, of the, the confessor saying to Harold, look after your sister, my queen. Um, Harold's sister is married to Edward the Confessor, look after this woman and treat her well, etc. And I'm kind of, you know, looking to you to take care of her and the kingdom. It's a very sort of weak bequeathing. Um, so there's that. Again, there's also, so there's no sort of, there's not any, any really, says contemporary opinion is divided, and there certainly seems to be sort of people writing at the time who uh, harboured doubts about the legitimacy of Harold's um, uh, accession and coronation. The coronation itself is very dubious, or suggests that the, 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 there was something fishy going on, because up until the Norman Conquest, um, the coronation was non-constitutive. Um, you weren't king because you were crowned. You were elected king by the great and the good, the powerful men in the kingdom and the bishops and the nobles. Um, and then you had your coronation at some later date. That was really just confirmation. That was, you know, asking God to bless your rule. And so if you look at the case of the confessor, he's crowned, uh, or rather he becomes king in the summer of 1042, but he's not crowned until Easter, 1043. So there's a good long delay there. Um, now, they do it differently in France. Um, you are, in, in France, the coronation is what makes you king. Um, so when the, when the Normans come over, that they're, they're not, not William doesn't consider himself king until he's crowned. But Harold takes more or less the same line. Harold, uh, the confessor, dies on the fifth of January. He's buried on the sixth of January, the following day. And the same day that the confessor is buried, Harold is crowned. Now that looks very suspicious. It looks like a man with an extremely weak claim, trying to bolster his legitimacy by saying, "Well, I'm crowned yeah. now." You know, I'm God's anointed, so, you know, you have to deal with that. So, um, that, that's a suspicious part of the drama. Um, and there, you know, there are other chroniclers as well writing within a generation or two. There's, um, I, I forget the name of the, the particular um, writer. It's um, someone who's writing for the Confessor's Doctor. Yeah. Writing for, I think it's um, Abbot Baldwin, I can't remember his monastery. But um, writing for an abbot who had previously been the physician to the, the Confessor. And um, uh, that source um, says that Harold took the throne with cunning force. So there were people um, at the time saying this was all very suspicious. Um, and apart from anything else, but, well, the, the other thing to say is that Harold, Harold's relationship with the Godwin family, not just Harold but with the Godwin mm. family, was... Um, a, a very unusual one. Um, it, it seems pretty clear to me that he couldn't stand, hated Harold's father, and that that animosity carried over to the next generation. But the Godwins were the family running the show in England throughout the latter part of Edward's reign, and that there was very little that Edward could do about that. So, uh, and you know, this is something that's said in the early 12th century as well. William of Malmesbury says, um, you know, some people say that Harold uh, was granted the throne by Edward, but I, you know, think this is a bit doubtful because it makes him give the kingdom to someone who he always distrusted and didn't like. So, um, again, what, what I'm saying is uh, Harold undoubtedly took the throne um, and I think he had enough people around him to say, yes, this was what the dying king wanted. But there were also a striking number of people saying that's not the way it happened. There are enough question marks against Harold's accession to make us think that it was all stitched up in yeah. the king's chamber, bedchamber, you know, as he was dying. Uh, so I think, you know, coup d'etat is, is pretty much covers it with Harold. Okay, and so, so once Harold did take the throne, uh, how, how good were William's chances of mounting invasion of England? I wouldn't like to quantify it, but it's, uh, to take it back to the point about the claim, it's a huge act of bravado, it's a huge mm. act of daring. Um, because every stage is fraught with risk. I mean, there are people, if, we're, if we, are, we are told that Edward the Confessor had attempted similar things in the 1030s and that they came to nothing. You know, you think of, you can think of any number of examples in the 11th century where people 
with seemingly good odds. People who were perhaps more piratical and thought that the odds were more stacked in their favour. The Danes, for example, repeatedly tried throughout the latter part of the 11th century to, to mount a Danish conquest of England, just as Knut, Svein and Knut had done at the start of the 11th century. And they keep coming over with hundreds and hundreds of ships and battle-hardened warriors looking for nothing but kind of, you know, they're not, they're not saying we have a legitimate claim to this kingdom. They're just coming as kind of old-style Vikings. Um, so their calculation of risk was presumably we have a good chance here of making this work. Um, but as those, as those examples prove, it's very risky. You know, if you, if, you, if you try and invade, then the chances are you might all get killed. So, um, uh, William's chances, I mean, Normandy, uh, whatever its strengths in the 11th century, is not a famous maritime nation. You know, they are celebrated as warriors, the Normans, but they are, by that stage, celebrated as mounted warriors. Uh, if you read the, the, the chronicles dealing with William's um, uh, youth, then the warfare is entirely about castles and siege castles and horses. Um, it's all land-based warfare. The only references we get to, to ships are those unsuccessful uh, invasion attempts by Edward the Confessor in the 1030s. So when you see the Bayer Tapestry and it shows men building ships from scratch, literally going from trees to the sawmill to the ships, we don't have to believe they built every ship, but there's a sense of there's this great experimental project going on. They're, they are... They are not like the Vikings, they're not natural seafarers. Um, so that's risky. Then there's the battle itself, which is risky, and it's ridiculous to try and, try and recover numbers. Battle of Hastings. The Battle of Hastings, yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, you know, in battle everything can go wrong. I mean, the famous battles we would like to remember are the ones where, you know, the odds are stacked against the victors at the start, and then the victors mm. triumph against ridiculous odds. Um, we, as I say, we can't. We can't by any legitimate method calculate the numbers at Hastings, that the best conclusion seems to me that uh, one that was arrived at by Wace in the 12th century, that they were roughly equal, the size of the armies, because it's a, it's a hard-fought battle that goes on all day. Um, but in battle, chance is a massive factor. You know, it's the, the factor. So, you know, if your leader dies, for example, at one stage the rumour goes round that, that William is dead and the battle line starts to collapse and William does this heroic thing that occurs in almost every source of riding along the front of the line with his helmet off his head saying, look, I'm alive, you know, and we will win if you follow me. Um, and equally, as everybody knows, Harold comes to a sticky end towards the end of the day at Hastings and once your leader's dead, you know, uh, that, that really is it. So... Um, I mean, the, it's to open up a whole other subject as to how Harold died, but the conventional wisdom is it was a chance arrow in the eye. I think that's, that's somewhat doubtful, but, um, but it nevertheless goes to show that, um, you know, when you've got tens of thousands of arrows being loosed in the course of the day, then, then uh, the chance is such a huge factor. And so obviously it went wrong for Harold at Hastings, but earlier that year he'd managed to repel an invasion in the north of England. What, what was different about the Norman invasion that meant he couldn't see that off in the same way he had with the Vikings or the Danes? Um, I think it's just a strategic blunder on Harold's part. I mean, it's not to say that, you know, he, he couldn't have won. I mean, there's so many factors, isn't there? No, you can't isolate something and say, oh, well, this was Harold's mistake. Harold seems to have, in a nutshell, um, the Vikings invade in the late summer of 1066, I mean to York, and they land just south of York, they fight a, a successful battle against the local Anglo-Saxon earls, and then they are preparing to head south with the people of Yorkshire, who are natural sympathisers being Anglo-Danish. Um, and Harold surprises them. I mean, Harold basically gets his act together far more quickly than they anticipate. They are holding a meeting to take sort of oaths of loyalty from the, the people of Yorkshire and then all of a sudden there's Harold who's marched up very quickly from the south and he surprises them um, which is obviously a, a crucial element there's a, a very nice little fact um, which checks out it's mentioned in one of the Norse sagas but it's also mentioned by a contemporary chronicler that because it was a hot sunny day the um, the, 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 the Danes had gone off to this meeting with their weapons but they hadn't worn their heavy mail coats, their coats of mail and so they were to that extent unprotected against English archery. Uh, as I say, so that, that's a, a, a nice kind of one of the few contemporary facts about the battle that, that seems to check out. Um, but again, we're told a hard fought battle that went on for hours and hours, very gory battle, 
as you'd expect, against the Vikings. But, you know, in that sense, Harold, Harold outgenerals his opponents and is lucky. What seems to happen at Hastings is the other way around. Harold tries to pull the same stunt. He marches south very quickly, he gets together another army. But again, plenty of chronicle uh, evidence suggesting that he set out too soon. Um, probably goaded into fighting an early battle by William. See, when William's come across in 1066, mm. it's his risk. He's invaded. Um, he needs things to move on very quickly. He needs a decisive fight with Harold. He can't sort of go on fighting and fighting and fighting. All Harold has to do is survive. And he, any number of things could do for William. You know, he can kind of cut off his supply lines from the rear with a fleet. He, he can force William's, by just waiting, he can force William's troops to um, run out of food and start splitting up and foraging in the countryside to find more food. So really, he, he can just play a waiting game. And instead he doesn't do that. He rushes down to Hastings and engages Harold as quickly as possible. Um, why? Uh, again, there are, there are contemporary, contemporary chronicles saying he set out too soon before his army was fully formed, which seems to fit. Um, and also, perhaps, probably, I would think, hubris. You know, this is a guy who's just beaten the Vikings, you know. And the, the strategy that worked for him then was taking them quickly by surprise, you know. Uh, and in, in, in the case of the Normans, it doesn't work. I mean, it's sort of playing into their hands because William needs a quick battle. Secondly, uh, certainly as far as I can see, um, William manages to turn the tables. Um, William gets word of Harold's advance. They're, 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 they know, they know, William knows that Harold is advancing on him. Uh, Harold knows where William is, but it seems in the last few hours in, uh, that William is aware of Harold's position and moves his troops into position to, to sort of, to, so Harold can't mount a surprise attack on William's camp at Hastings. So he moves out from Hastings and moves up to meet him at battle. Um, so, so in the last few hours before the battle, William turns the tables. Um, so, but you know, as I say, the, 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 it's not like they, the Normans fall upon the unwitting Anglo-Saxons, isn't it? They, 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 mm. they see each other from a distance, there's a call to arms, you know, the trumpets sound, and then they, they engage. Um, so it is very much a, uh, it's not, a, it's not a, a, an ambush on either side. They, they have time to draw their troops up, and, um, and then it's a very hard-fought battle, but a very decisive one. And the thing you mentioned earlier, which I'd be interested to know a bit more about, is yeah. Harold's death. We all have this idea of the arrow in the eye. Do you think that, that holds up from the evidence? I, uh, I, I was a, so keen for the, Har the Harold arrow in the eye thing to work when I started off. Because yeah. I, I remember do I did the Norman Conquest as a special subject when I was an undergraduate, and I revisited again when I did a TV series on castles. Mm -hmm. and so I've been around it several times, and I was convinced that, I, I still am convinced that, large elements of the traditional story are true, so I was quite attracted by the idea of the arrow in the eye. Um, but um, several things I read in the course of researching the book led me to think that probably the arrow in the eye is um, made up. Um, that's not to say that Harold you know, there are a lot of arrows. The, the, the bottom line is we don't know how Harold died. It was a long time ago and we don't have any, you know, cine film. Or, um, we've only got chroniclers, monastic chroniclers, writing a long time after the event. The thing is, if you look at it immediately, you see there are three or four chroniclers um, that say Harold got an arrow in the face or an arrow in the eye or an arrow in the brain. And it seems to us, so you think, oh, well, that's, that's, that's fairly conclusive. But actually, the chroniclers that say that are all a generation or two after the event, their early 12th century as opposed to 1066 itself. If the, you look at the contemporary chroniclers, none of them mention the arrow in the eye. Um, William of Jumiers doesn't mention it. Um, uh, you might say that in the case of William of Jumiers, uh, so what? Because his account of the battle is quite short. But William of Poitiers doesn't mention it. He's writing in the 1070s. He doesn't mention the way Harold died at all. Um, and we have another source um, that's recently been rehabilitated, the, the Song of the Battle of Hastings, the Carmen de Hastings guy Proilio, which suggests that Harold was deliberately hacked down by William and some other men, and that for a long time was ruled out of court um, as unreliable evidence. It's, as I say, it's been rehabilitated in recent years, and it, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly uh, plausible that the idea that in, 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 in looking at the, the William's war aims 
assumed war aims that he needs Harold to die um, at the end of the day. He can't afford Harold to survive and you know keep fighting against him. Um, that he could have ordered or led uh, a death squad of the kind we know that did for, say, Simon de Montfort in, in 1065 at Evesham. Um, and equally, it's, it's credible that just as with Evesham, the, the royalists, the victorious uh, royalists, you know, chose not to, to brag about mm. the way they'd hacked Montfort to bits, um, that William wouldn't have wanted to, you know, that to be generally known that he had had any part in... in uh, targeting and, and, and blood, bloodily killing a, a, an anointed king. So um, that, that story has been somewhat rehabilitated. To get back to the arrow in the eye, the only contemporary source that mentions or shows the arrow in the eye is, of course, the Bayer Tapestry. Um, now, that's reckoned to be late 1060s or, or, or 1070s at the latest. Um, the thing that kind of does for the tapestry, as far as I'm concerned, is that the tapestry, um, well, there's several things. One, people would say it's re- it was restored in the um, uh, 19th century, the, the sort of second quarter of the 19th mm. century. It was heavily restored. Uh, some people would say, well, if you look at the earliest drawings and you compare the tapestry as it stands now, that the, the arrow wasn't there in the first place, or what might have been there was a man throwing a, a spear or mm. something. Then there's also controversy in the, in the second half of the 20th century about whether the figure with the arrow in the eye is actually Harold. Um, you know, some people would say, well, that's not Harold at all. Harold is the figure, the next figure in the sequence who's yeah. being hacked down. I think that the consensus, broadly, the consensus now is that Harold is, dis- is, is both figures. Um, and that there's something the tapestry does quite a lot, is showing a development of here's Harold dying and here's Harold dead, you know. Um, so, e- but even if we accept, this is the thing, even if we accept that the tapestry has not been tampered with and did show an arrow in the eye, that's what the artist intended, mm. and that the figure with the arrow in the eye is Harold, the real stumbling block, as far as I'm concerned, is that we know from lots of other examples that the tapestry artist borrows other images from other sources, particularly books. One of the reasons yeah. that we are pretty certain it was made at Canterbury is because so many of the, um, the scenes in the Bayer Tapestry are lifted from books that came from Canterbury. So, for example, where you have Odo of Bayeux uh, having a feast on the eve of the Battle of Hastings, it is based on a picture of the Last Supper that was in a Canterbury manuscript. So the, he's, he's pinching images all the time. He's pinching exemplar. And what he seems to have done in the case of Harold's death scene is uh, lifted uh, his his source seems to have been the death of a biblical king called Zedekiah Um, we've got illustrations from 10th century bibles of the killing of Zedekiah um, and his sons by Nebuchadnezzar and if you look at particularly some of the figures in this it's very difficult to make this argument without images but if you look at some of the surrounding images they seem to be lifted it's in in my book uh, you can see these images side by side and the killing of Zedekiah and his sons uh, uh, seems to be the source he's gone for. Zedekiah, to give you the biblical backstory, Zedekiah was a king who was punished by his overlord Nebuchadnezzar for um, uh, for contumacy, for basically disobeying his overlord. And his sons were beheaded in front of him. We seem to have a man being beheaded just before Harold dies, lifted from his manuscript. And the punishment for the king Zedekiah himself was blinding. It's quite possible that the tapestry artists sort of thought, well, this is what happens to contumacious vassals. This is what happens if you go against your overlord and your overlord punishes you as he beheads your sons and he puts your eyes out. And so it could be, could well be, that since that is our only source mentioning the blinding of Harold, that uh, the tapestry artists just thought, this is, this is the way that this king ought to have died and has done the arrow in the eye. Now, all of that is, to, is, is not to say that, you know, there, as I say, there are a lot of arrows flying around uh, on that day in October 1066, and it could well be that Harold, Harold was fell by an arrow. But the only source we've got is the biotapestry, uh, the only contemporary source, the biotapestry, which, as we know from other evidence, borrows images left, right and centre. And the chroniclers that mention the arrow in the eye, the early 12th century ones, are... Uh, seem to be the chroniclers that may well have seen the tapestry. So it may well have, that, by that stage, been an accepted yeah. fact that this is the way Harold met his end. But as I say, it's not in the contemporary sources, and we have another major contemporary source that suggests he died in a completely different way. 
still something for mystery there. I think you're never going to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. But the thing that surprised me when I looked into it was just how dubious I found the arrow in the eye story because it rests solely on an artistic source. And the Bayer Tapestry, for all its, its merits, which are, you know, manifold, it's a wonderful, wonderful source, you have to treat with great caution because it is an artistic impression. You know, it's 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 as it's, it's as uh, unreliable as having a poem about the battle, or you know, it's it's then it's not drawn from life. You know, it's made up years after the event in a monastery, yeah. and it's in, it's an embroidery. It's an embroidery in every sense. Um, yeah, and so after the Battle of Hastings, clearly Harold's dead, but. How much of the conquest had actually been completed? How much more was there to do? Oh, everything, point? everything. I mean, there's this ludicrous line in the the, 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 the Norman apologist William of Poitiers that mm. says something like, and see how magnificent William was. He'd conquered the whole kingdom in a day. You know, it had taken Caesar so many so many years to do it, and William had done it all in a day. And it's 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 ludicrous because he's uh, at that stage he's master of the field and he's co he's conquered Pevensey and Hastings, but everything else is still to play for. And what he faces. So the next couple of months is is Anglo-Saxon resistance, particularly in London. London holds out against yeah. him, and he has this this sort of harrying campaign around London until the Londoners submit. And then later in the new year, 1067, um, the leaders of the North submit. So the the English submit within a few months uh, after a lot more brutal harrying. But thereafter, uh, the English just refuse to accept the fact that they're conquered. They go on rebelling and revolting um, for the next five years. Um, and the conquest becomes more and more brutal. Uh, the reason you get the rebellions, one of the reasons you get the rebellions, is that the Normans, particularly William to begin with, is far too lenient. Or is lenient compared to what the, the, the English have experienced in the previous century, which is being invaded by the Vikings. Now, when the Vikings invade and conquer, you know you've been conquered. I mean, when Knut invades uh, in, 1060, in, in 1016, 50 years before, um, he starts his reign off with a jolly round of executions at court. You know, so all the people that might conceivably pose a threat have their heads lopped off, um, which is the Viking way to go about things. Now, William starts off, and whilst a lot of people died at Hastings, when people submit, he sells them back their lands and he, he leaves them in power. He gives them back their, you know, their power. So, just in return for a profession of fealty. So it's not what they're used to, and I think this encourages the feeling amongst the English that, you know, we haven't really been conquered, you know, we're still, we're still alive, we've still got a pound, we can just turf these guys out come the new year. And of course history proves them wrong, but that initial leniency means that the conquest becomes more bloody by stages the longer it goes on. So there's a rebellion and William puts it down, uh, and people sort of then sort of reprofess their fealty to him. And then there's another rebellion, another rebellion, until it, fi it finally gets to a stage um, after he's invaded Yorkshire, or been up to Yorkshire three times by the, um, the winter of, of 1069, the, the notorious incident that is the harrying of the North, where I mean, by that stage, uh, in the summer of 1069, the country has been invaded, the, the, the rebels have, have got the Danes to invade to back them up. So this is a really serious threat. And William basically lays waste to Yorkshire and all points north of York. Um, which uh, is not just going around killing people, but it's, it's, it's the deliberate targeting of crops and livestock, which causes a famine. And it means by the new year people are starving to death and you've got refugees turning up as far south as Evesham. Um, and, you know, just dropping like flies. Um, so, as I say, the conquest becomes more and more brutal. Thereafter, you have, um, after the Great Rising of 1069, there are one or two smaller local rebellions. There's a famous one in East Anglia, led by Hereward the Wake, this figure mm. of legend. Um, but thereafter, it tails off, and there are no more national risings. So you could, you could argue that the conquest, in terms of putting down English insurrection, was over at the latest by 1072. But it's a fairly long, drawn-out process of, 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 of crushing insurrection. Why did... I mean, maybe it was because of the difficulty of conquering England. Why didn't they go for the whole island then? Once they were why didn't they go for the whole thing? Well, you've got to remember that the, the, the kings of England prior to 1066, whilst they ruled a precociously united and powerful mm. state, very rarely went further north than the Midlands, and never at all really into Yorkshire. Uh, I mean, Knut went to York on one occasion, I think, and it's just possible Edward the Confessor went on one occasion. But their power north of the Humber is extremely weak, so these, there's no surprise that these people in the north, 
in Yorkshire and, and Northumbria, you know, far north, are, are, are sort of when when um, when the Normans come along, they're, they're sort of they're they're reacting in a sense to this kind of a a, a, a more um, demanding and invasive form of government than they've previously experienced under the, the former kings of Wessex. Um, so. Um, well, as I say, whilst England is a United Kingdom, it's not a case of like, you know, you just you take control of London and then everything else submits. What was the impact of this Norman Conquest? Well, obviously people who are fighting may have been killed. What's the, Im the wider impact of the conquest on the country? A vast question. I mean, this is one of the things about doing the book yeah. on the conquest was that the story is, is familiar. I mean, the story is actually a lot more complicated than people mm. imagine um, from the story they're taught at school. Um, but it affects just about everything. And it was actually trying to pick out the things that were most affected by the conquest. Mm. The other thing that's difficult when you're writing a book about it is that there are things that people previously said, oh, well, that's due to the Norman Conquest, that we now think the conquest had almost no impact on at all. I mean, the conquest had very little impact on, uh, say, uh, the introduction of parishes, or um, a good example is women's rights. I mean, it was it was argued from the 19th century onwards, you know, that the conquest was a bad thing for women because under the Anglo-Saxons, they'd had more or less equality, some sort of rough and ready equality was the phrase with their menfolk. Uh, and that was blown out of the water as recently as the 1990s. You know, it was just, just proved to be a, a construct, more or less wishful thinking of the Victorians and, and the historians writing in the early part of the 20th century. Um, you know, the, 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 the sad truth of the matter is women had it bad both sides of the, the, the Iron Curtain of 1066. Having said that, having said that there's lots of things that we now think, well, the conquest had not, not much impact, there are lots of other things, rather excitingly, in recent decades that have been opened up and shown to have been fairly substantial change. I mean, uh, the ones that I'm most interested in the book are, are attitudes. For instance, the Normans seem to have speeded up the rate of decline of slavery in England. If you look at England, and this is again something that's not really generally appreciated, is prior to 1066, England was a, a, a slave trading and a slave owning society. Um, upwards of 10% of the entire population were slaves. And that's not, you know, to be very clear, this is not sort of slaves like they weren't peasants, they weren't serfs. They were human chattels to be bought and sold. They could be killed by their masters without their masters facing any kind of legal sanction, uh, stoned to death if they were men, burnt to death if they were female slaves. So that kind of almost kind of classical slavery, if you think of slaves in the, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the Roman period, that's what you had in England prior to the conquest. English people, these Yes. Um, you had, yeah, English people were sort of enslaved. So you have um, the free and the unfree. The unfree are so any sort of 10% or so of the population, but an essential part of of the society. Now, um, in Normandy it seems that the, the, the generality of peasants may have been worse off because um, they had a more exacting, demanding form of lordship that they were developing. This is where you get into the, the thorny question of feudalism, but certainly seem to have uh, been more demanding of their peasantry, and that's an attitude they introduced into England after the conquest. So for a long time, um, historians thought, said, well, you know, the, the peasantry had it worse, and in some areas of the country they may well have done, where they had greater freedoms that were curtailed by the Normans. But one thing the Normans seem to have done is done away with slavery. Um, there's only one county where we can quantify it in Doomsday, which is Essex. But Essex shows, if you look at the, the drop between 1066 and 1086 when the Doomsday Survey was, was made, a 25% drop in the number of slaves. And that, that notion that the, that the Normans are doing away with slavery is borne out by the fact that, one, the Normans didn't have slavery prior to the conquest. Um, it had died out in a generation or two before the conquest. Um, and two, we have contemporary chroniclers, or con chroniclers writing a generation or so after the conquest, saying as much, saying that, you know, one of the good things that William the Conqueror did was he uh, stopped the slave trade out of Bristol. Bristol has had more than one shot at the slave trade. It has the famous one dealing with black Africans in, in, from the 18th century onwards. But it also had a, a very lively trade, its, its economy based on slavery, in the uh, 11th century trading um, English people to Ireland and back and forth. And William the Conqueror puts an end to that. Um, so, yeah, so, so, you know, this isn't to say hooray for the Normans, but it's just to say one of the things that the people don't realise is the Normans seem to have brought slavery to a close far quicker than it would have done yeah. without them. Um, at the same time, they, um, they do away with political killing. 
Um, I've already said that, um, you know, Canute starts his reign 50 years before with this bloody purge of the English court. And that was the way the English did business, like the Vikings. That was the kind of way politics worked. If you wanted someone rubbed out, you rubbed them out. Uh, You see the Godwins doing it throughout Edward the Confessor's reign. I mean, Godwin doesn't get on with Edward the Confessor, or Edward the Confessor doesn't like Godwin, because he orchestrated the murder of his brother Alfred. Um, And you have that going on right up to the eve of the conquest in 1066. You know, political murder is is seen as a necessary part of politics. Not so in Normandy before the conquest, the generation before the conquest, and not so after the conquest in England. We have one guy, uh, Earl Waltheof, who is deliberately executed um, after the conquest, and after that, that's more or less it until the early 14th century. Uh, you have no earls executed until 1306 after that. So the conquest ushers in two and a half centuries almost of chivalry for want of a better word, chivalric restraint chivalry not in the sense of laying your cloak in a puddle for a lady but in the sense of when you have a man at your mercy a political enemy at your mercy you don't take the opportunity to lob his head off you might put him in a castle and imprison him you might demand a heavy ransom for him but you don't kill him so the Normans again seem to have been ahead of the curve ahead of the, uh, the English certainly in developing and applying this this greater respect for human life, both in terms of the bottom end with slavery and in terms of the top top end with um, sparing their opponents. So you know these attitudes are introduced by the Normans, and these have you know these have um, um, far-reaching effects. Um, I mean, one of the effects that's very clear is that once the Normans have introduced these new attitudes. Um, to England, and they take root very quickly, is by the uh, early to mid-12th century, the English start to look at their Celtic neighbours, who are doing exactly as the English had done 50 years before, i.e. murdering their political opponents, practising war as slave hunt and enslaving women and, you know, men and women. Um, And they look at them and think, gosh, these people are barbarians, they need civilising. And so those attitudes help to uh, the English to justify their own colonial enterprises in the rest of the British Isles for the rest of the Middle Ages. They can look at the Welsh and the Irish and the Scots and say, these are savages in of, need of conquering and civilising. So that has a massive knock-on effect of the conquest. So that was one of the, the things I wanted to get across in the book. That was one of the most, I think, most interesting things um, to come out of it. There are, other, there are other huge changes. I mean, architecture is a very obvious and visible one. I'm a firm believer in the fact that the, the English didn't have castles before the conquest, not in any meaningful sense, and the Normans, by, by the turn of the 11th, 12th century, have bought, built 500 to 1,000 new castles, so the sudden introduction of castles. The total um, demolition of all the Anglo-Saxon cathedrals and major abbeys, um, you know, that's done by the 1120s, the 1130s, all the cathedrals have been ripped down and replaced. That's a huge architectural revolution. I mean, you forget Gothic and English perpendicular and all that. They take generations. This is done within 50 years. All the cathedrals have been rebuilt. So Romanesque is suddenly there. You know, and these churches are massive I mean, compared to their Anglo-Saxon predecessors. The one that I use in the book as an example is Winchester. Um, we look at cathedrals today and they're all much of a muchness. You, know, you can find little tiny Welsh ones, but in English cathedrals, because they've been rebuilt over the centuries and you know, they have bigger naves added and they're just a sort of, they're overwritten and overwritten. But if you look at something like Winchester after the conquest, its nave is know, 50 or 60 feet longer than the biggest nave before that. It is the biggest church north of the Alps it is bigger even than the churches built by the emperors of Germany, the Holy Roman emperors mm. in Spire and Mainz, uh, the generation before. The only church that can compete with Winchester uh, uh, by the end of the 11th century is um, St Peter's in Rome, built by Constantine the Great, the emperor. So, the, And this is not accidental. Yeah. You know, The fact that they are building the biggest church north of the Alps is the Normans saying, we are here and we are conquerors on a par, or better than the um, Holy Roman Emperor or the Roman Emperors of old. So, you know, this is massive, sweeping, in-your-face architectural change. The Tower of London, you know, what do we have from Anglo-Saxon England to compare with the Tower of London? You know, it's, it's, it's nothing. So, um, 
Again, that's 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 the kind of change that has long been appreciated. So you've got change on almost every level. It's very difficult to condense it into one handy volume. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm sure this is quite a dangerous question to ask, but in sort of a 1066 and all that way of looking at things, mm. was the Norman Conquest a good or bad thing? Oh, it? good thing, bad thing. Um, no, I don't think you can honestly answer that. I think it very much depends on... Um, if you were an English person, it was a bad thing. I mean, the English, the English Chronicles, they're so upset after 1066, they don't even mention it hardly. It's mm. just, woe is me. I mean, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle just uh, cries and cries and cries for, for the duration of, of William's reign. Um, there's some great lines in the life of, of King Edward, which it seems to be a source that was started, this is controversial, but I think people, say at least 50% of the people believe that it was a source started before the conquest and completed afterwards and it just switches tone in the middle to um, you know what should I say of it's just despair what should I say of England what should I say of generations to come um, yes so uh, lots and lots of people dying you know we had a death toll that cannot be recovered but thousands probably at Hastings mm. you know total bloodshed at Hastings widespread slaughter countless thousands in the in the in the the rebellions that followed possibly even six-figure sums uh, when it comes to the harrying of the north I mean the doomsday data for Yorkshire is just horrific you know it's 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 it's, it's quite credible that they, they lost six-figure sums as a result of that devastation so you know don't get me wrong Norman conquest if you lived through it must have been appalling um, and I'm not in any sense sort of saying hurrah for the Normans. Um, but I do think that, that for too long perhaps the danger has been the other way of just the Norman conquest. Like all conquests for a conquered people, it becomes an excuse to blame everything on. You know, oh, the Norman conquest was responsible for the class system and feudalism and bad rights for women and, you know, worse lot. And this sort of the, uh, this, this fetishization of pre-conquest England as a golden age, I think is equally wrong. So, you know, like a good historian, you're trying to sort of get the balance yeah. right between the two. Um, so no, I don't think you can say good thing, bad thing, but I th certainly think you can credibly make the claim that it is the most important event in the last 2,000 years in terms of English history because of the, the vast amount of change that happened so quickly as a result of it. I mean, basically, if, if you wipe out the top tier of a country's um, ruling class, it's not just Harold who gets killed at Hastings, remember, it's the entire Anglo-Saxon aristocracy, and then whittled down further and further in the generation that follows. We're talking about 7,000 people being replaced, um, 7,000 Normans appearing, becoming the new governing class, the entire top tier of the church, you know, all the bishops, all the abbots being replaced. Mm. Um, one thing we haven't touched on, of course, is language. All these people speak French. You know, the English to them is gobbledygook. So uh, written English, which had been uh, uh, not quite unique, but certainly a very unusual, precocious thing to have a written vernacular in 1066, yeah. that's, that's, that's gone within a generation or two. Um, you know, because no one can understand it. Everyone who's in power speaks French or Latin. So we look at that now and say, isn't it wonderful? What a fantastic result. We have two words for everything, you know, because we've got French words and we've got English words. But mm. people at the time, it was a disaster for, the, for English-speaking people because the language they spoke and wrote, was they saw it dying before their eyes. So it depends who you ask. So after Norman Conquest, no one else ever really manages to conquer uh, England properly again. Why do you think that was? Do you think it was a legacy of the Norman Conquest that made it so hard to conquer uh, again? I don't, you see, I'm not very good at doing this kind of long durée, yeah. looking across the, the centuries. I mean, some people would say that's just a nonsense, that there are plenty of occasions where people invade mm. um, and, and sort of take over the country. But I suppose the difference with the Normans is that it's, it's, there's a difference between an invasion where you kind of just come in and have, have a coup d'etat and take over, mm. and a conquest which is kind of full sort of city by city, um, you know, shire by shire, uh, to, to conquer an unwilling people. Um, and in that sense, I think the conquest isn't, isn't repeated and is, is um, a sort of one-off. Um, I mean, one of the reasons, be something I've already touched upon, is castles. I think England was vulnerable in 1066 because it didn't have castles, uh, the way that most areas of France and Western Europe did by that date. Um, but once the Normans had been there, for even a few years, the castles were there. So, so you know, subsequent invaders found that they had all these strong points to, right. to take over. So you, you've got all these, these castles in your way. So they make it more difficult to conquer. Um, so 
there's there's one potential reason. Um, but I mean, in the general reason is it's because it's 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 a difficult thing to do to conquer an entire country. So in, in that sense, you know, you, you take your hats off to the Normans. As I said, said at the start, it was an act of daring and bravado, whatever the legitimacy of it, and they pull it off. See, that's why people are still so fascinated by it today. I think they're fascinated it for all kinds of reasons. I think it becomes, it, it, it's, it very early on, by the 12th century, it becomes embedded as the turning point in English history. This is not a construct of the 19th or 20th centuries, like, say, the Hundred Years' War. This is not something someone said, I know, we'll call it the Norman Conquest. You know, This was a defining moment for English people from the moment it happened, and it became a way of uh, a starting and ending point a chapter break, if you like, in their history. Um, and they had to sort of uh, reconcile their history before the conquest with what was happening afterwards. And they had to sort of start telling new stories about it. So the Norman conquest is kind of one of the oldest stories we have. Um, and so I think that's why it's, it's, it's so fascinating. That's why it's so crucial, say, to the school curriculum. It's, it's, it's always been there. That was Mark Morris. His book, entitled The Norman Conquest, is out now, published by Hutchinson. You can read a review of Mark's book in the May issue of BBC History magazine. And do look out for a piece by him about the Normans and their castles, which will be coming up in the summer. Now we have a short advert. What links the weddings of kings and queens, the funeral of a hero, and the music of great composers? What was once London's grandest street, but has never contained a single cobble? What's been a stage for royal pageantry and pleasure for hundreds of years? The answer, the Thames, Britain's Royal River. Book your ticket for Royal River, Power, Pageantry and the Thames, sponsored by Barclays. A unique exhibition in celebration of Her Majesty the Queen's Diamond Jubilee and guest curated by me, David Starkey, at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich from the 27th of April. Book now. Search online for Royal River. Public history is a phrase that's regularly banded about these days, and in the April issue of BBC History magazine, Dr Anna Whitelock argued that all historians should be public historians. Anna is the course director for a Master's in Public History at Royal Holloway, University of London. Two of Anna's students, Heather Lonks and Hannah Murray, sat down with Anna a little while back to discuss public history. How would you define public history? Well, I mean, I think public history is uh, a many-faceted thing, um, and it, in some sense depends on different audiences and different contexts. Um, I think wrongly some people think public history is um, very popular, academically feeble uh, history. I think you know that might be some people's perception and therefore reservation about public history. Um, but in fact it's about the dissemination of historical knowledge. It's not simply um, you know, history like, you know, the Tudors costume dramas with very flimsy, uh, you know, academic uh, credentials. It's, it's history for people, for people to engage with. It's history outside the academy, I suppose. Whereas the whole idea of actually saying to people who have no idea, this is what it was like, this is how it was, and enthusing an audience that doesn't know. I mean, what, how fantastic is that? What a waste of research for just a couple of hundred people to know about it. All historians should be or indeed are, whether they like it or not, public historians. As part of their raison d'etre, they see the, you know, their, you know, the articulation of research to a wider audience, not simply um, academics at a conference or within their department or whatever. I would totally support research totally in the archives at the coalface, and I would do that myself. So I don't think that it's one or the other. There are clearly some people who are totally, you know, up for being, you know, in the spotlight and in the archives. There'll be some people who are much more comfortable in the dark shadows of the archives, but they still can and should play a public role. It just might not be in the kind of glamour of TV or radio. It might be in a more, I don't know, sort of uh, quiet, um, smaller scale project of public history. 
research into what some people might think are the most obscure things is incredibly important. It's incredibly important to have that gold standard. And I think it's important to sort of make clear that the nature of a historian in their public function will vary. So some historians, you know, would just never in a million years be able to, or indeed want to, translate their research into a television programme or on the radio or in an article for a commercial, you know, a magazine or newspaper. But what they can do in a way is maybe influence, I don't know, policy making or have an impact on um, the new curriculum for, for schools, work with, um, you know, to inform government about um, issues of ethnicity or, you know, all these kind of issues that actually might not be the um, in the spotlight kind of public history that we might immediately think of, but actually are as important. Some academics will conflate public history and the whole question of impact and say, oh, no, 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 it's, you know, it's a nonsense. And in a way, it's a way of corrupting academic history, you know, that funding should be purely based on academic rigour and it should be about, you know, old-fashioned style, historical writing, monographs that perhaps are, you know, are intended to be read by a very small group of people and they would see that as the academic gold standard. Whereas it's being now sort of forced upon historians to actually consider how they make an impact. Um, so there's resistance on that level but of course the bigger issue about public history is that hopefully it's an impulse that everybody would want to do anyway. Um, I mean I just find it, well it's just kind of instinctive to me. The agenda is now in some ways being forced upon uh, academics whether they like it or not because as part of the funding criteria for universities so one of the ways in which universities get money from the government and are assessed in terms of their merit for money from the government is for um, academics and departments as a whole to make a case for impact as it's called and this is a very contentious term in academic circles at the moment and the argument is that historians should show how their historical research has had an impact on the wider community. Do you think that historians should be involved in current debates? I mean I just think it's about informing public discourse and people of course are going to have political biases and whatever in the midst of the debate of course but that doesn't mean that they can't make pertinent observations based on historical knowledge and precedent and you know I just think it's staggering sometimes the you know the amount of time you listen to um, you know politicians or um, you know other figures in the media who are just speaking about things that and they have no sense that actually these situations were you know in some sense reflected years ago in different contexts and actually that there's lessons to be drawn or you know contrasts to be made but that historical perspective I think is you know really lacking uh, you know not least in you know the debates about going to war with Iraq and all of that kind of thing you know if people and also how to rebuild countries you know like Iraq after they've been um, you know ripped apart by conquest I mean there's precedents and examples and ways of thinking from the past and you know these didn't even seem to be in the mix of the debate um, so I think that's dangerous not to have that historical perspective. What can public historians do to bridge this gap? A really good example of how this gap can be bridged is the the website and the network that is History and Policy and it's a project that's been going for a number of years whereby historians offer themselves as part of a network and are then called upon by policymakers and the media to inform particular issues. Um, those historians can pr produce briefing papers on particular issues. That kind of clearinghouse for academics um, as a way of uh, entering public debate is, is fantastic because it's people who wouldn't necessarily spring to mind but actually brilliantly well placed to make a really informed case uh, to government, policymakers, or just within any kind of, you know, political or public debate that's going on. So I think that's a really good example of 
you know, the mutually beneficial relationship that can exist between academic history and, you know, the media and, and government. At the end of the day, you can't entirely predict and determine what's going to be picked up in the media that, you know, and what's ultimately going to be the thing that people are debating. But you've got to at least enter the debate. What is the responsibility of public historians in relation to the national curriculum? Absolutely history should be placed back at the centre of, um, of the curriculum. And I think the implications of it not being and the way that it's taught at the moment, this piecemeal pick and mix approach, really dangerous. We do have to have a bigger debate between academics talking about, look, this is where scholarship's going, this is, this is the new thinking, and it needs to filter down into schools. So not only is the new cutting edge research, but actually new approaches to teaching it. And so I think it's, you know, it's a big question and it's not just, there's no easy answer. How much of students' disinterest is actually in the subject of history versus the way that it's taught? Absolutely. Of course history's not boring. I mean, anybody who likes watching films or dramas or soap operas or, you know, reading stories, I mean, this, all of those things are part of history. I mean, there is absolutely no reason on earth, unless, you know, you're not disinterested in life itself. <laughs> There's no reason why you would find history boring. Do you think history should be compulsory for students until 16? What's compulsory and what's not seems to me very ad hoc. Um, but I do think up to GCSE, you know, you need to be English, history, mathematics, science. You know, these are kind of core things to be doing. You know, obviously the consequences of that are that as people go through the education system and then enter the world of work and politics, that they're entering these realms without this sort of historical grounding and it's not just about you know everybody should learn history and be able to know that you know the battle of hastings was in 1066 it's about understanding human behavior and how societies develop and evolve and about political discussion and where ideas come from i mean without a doubt or the history that they are learning even is pick and mix history it's history that's supposed to be you know, look at the sources, almost like pretend you're a historian before you have some historical knowledge and content. And, you know, we have a profound epidemic in this country of historical illiteracy. Can you explain to us what's the role of the public historian in the media? All of these uh, different uh, people and different perspectives are really engaging with the same question about how you keep things authentic and rigorous and accurate but at the same time reach a wider audience. There are so many concessions you have to make, compromises you have to strike uh, in order to get a program, well for, in the first instance commissioned and then to actually get broadcast. It has to go through so many levels of uh, people saying yes this is suitable and you know if you want a program on say BBC One which you might imagine would be the kind of holy grail to have a program on BBC One you know prime time you can imagine the potential viewing figures in order for that to be the case it has to have certain qualities and whether in fact that can do justice to historical arguments and interpretations is very very questionable presenters of television programs don't of historical television programs aren't necessarily public historians so to be a public historian should be a historian in the first instant it's not about being a public personality and being somebody who will just bring in viewing figures just because they're a public personality. No, absolutely not. That's, you know, that's a public persona and personality and all of that. It's not history. Public historians should be a historian. So in answer to your question, I think that academic historians, yes, yeah, should come down from the ivory tower and pick up the microphone. It's not a question of, you know, they have to learn from public historians. They actually have to become them. That was Anna Whitelock of Royal Holloway, University of London in conversation with two of her public history MA students, who were Heather Lonks and Hannah Murray. And if you'd like to hear more from Anna Whitelock, she'll be joining historian Kate Williams for the third of our Tower of London lectures, which takes place on the 14th of June. They'll be comparing two very different queens who just happened to share a first name, Elizabeth I and Elizabeth II. And you can find all the details on page 33 of our May issue, 
or else on our website at historyextra.com forward slash tower lecture. And while I'm on the subject, we've also got a few tickets still available for the Tower of London lecture on the 17th of May. That's featuring Dan Jones and Susanna Lipscomb. They'll be discussing the relative importance of the Tudor and Plantagenet dynasties. For tickets and details of that, again, please visit historyextra.com forward slash tower lecture. Well, that's about it for this week. We shall return next week when we'll be discussing Richard III and having a chat with Michael Wood about his new BBC TV series. In the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. Plus, don't forget, you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and Apple Newsstand, respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced, with love, by Dave Gibson. <laughs>